Well, another week, and wow, what a crazy week it was in the college football world last week. And the ground may not be done shaking yet after Arizona, Arizona State, and Utah left for the Big 12. And Oregon and Washington are headed to the Big 10. And it looks like the former Pac-12 conference, which is down to the Pac-4, looks like they may not exist anymore. In fact, they don't currently exist. And more than likely, out of the four schools that remain, they're all scrambling for what is that next deal. So college football realignment, the crashing and burning once and for all of the 2023 U.S. Women's National Team in the World Cup to discuss uh, that and what are the Baltimore Orioles doing with a, with a tremendous season on the field, creating their own uh, controversy in terms of broadcasting and penalizing one of their broadcasters for what? For telling the truth? While they're having a really good season, uh, that they're that they're better this year than what they have been, we're going to get into all of that, and you're going to hear from one of the top college football insiders in terms of information, if not the top guy. I've known Brett McMurphy for 25 years, and I put him up against anybody in the realm. Uh, Stuart Mandel, uh, Bruce Feldman, uh, any any information guy anywhere on being able to get it nationwide. Brett used to work with the now defunct Tampa Tribune many years ago, has been in several different uh, roles with CBSSports.com, uh, with ESPN.com, and now with the Action Network. I look forward to talking with him about college football realignment. You'll hear from him in just a little bit. Welcome in. It is the Last Word on Sports Media podcast. I'm the somewhat capable host, TJ Reeves. We do the best to be diverse on the show, bring you not only my opinions and takes, but some great newsmakers in the world of sports media, uh, people that call the games, that report on the games, et cetera, have insight, broadcast colleagues of mine to just talk about the issues, et cetera. So uh, we love doing that every week. Thank you for finding us. However, you've done so. The Last Word on Sports Media podcast feed is part of lastwordonsports.com. Again, my buddy George Offman, tell me a story I don't know, is still rocking along uh, here in 2023 football season coming George's podcast is a storytelling podcast centered and focused in and around the Chicago market uh the uh the massive Chicago sports media market and he even branches beyond that even beyond media members including this week which why not for the football season talk some with Brett Bielema the Illinois football coach the former uh, Wisconsin football coach, the former Arkansas football coach in college football. Speaking of college football, George has a great time getting the stories out of Brett Bielema, including turning around Illinois football into a contender in what is an ever-expanding Big Ten. Hear from him with George this week on this podcast feed, the podcast immediately preceding this one on the Last Word on Sports Media podcast feed. And then Phil demont Mullen and Mike Gill do a great job with the announcer schedules podcast, I always love hearing them with the takes, the insight, who does it well in the broadcast booth, nationally, TV, radio, with all the calls. They have great guests, broadcasters that join them as well. Announcer schedules, not just the Twitter handle, but announcer schedules the podcast right here on this podcast feed later in the week uh, here uh, on the program. So again, thank you for finding me. Brett McMurphy here in a few moments to talk college football and expansion Again, several other subjects to talk about, including uh, mainly at the forefront here. The U.S. women's national team has now lost. You know, a week ago we had Ken Fang and uh, Jonathan Grella. Uh, actually, that was a couple of weeks ago talking women's national team and the soccer, et cetera. And then last week, Tyler Jones and Jason Powers were with me as, as this thing was unraveling. And one of the prominent former U.S. star players, Carly Lloyd, was on the Fox Sports Airwaves sounding the alarm 
uh, on the post-game show after their draw with Portugal that she didn't like what she saw. She didn't like the culture. She didn't like the mindset, the body language, the execution of anything. She was sounding the warning alarm about how the culture had changed a couple of years ago. And I, again, continue to maintain, even though she didn't say it, I believe she was indirectly talking about Megan Rapino and divisiveness in that locker room and things that come from winning being more important than winning. Things from coming from winning like money, yes, but fame and then turning it to identity politics and those kind of things. Carly Lloyd didn't say that, but it basically to me was this is what she's talking about, prominently and primarily, that we've gotten off track on being the best women's soccer program in the world, the two-time defending World Cup champs. All right, so now we come back a week later, and they've lost their round of 16 game, the first round of the knockout stage, in humiliating fashion. Let's be honest, this team has bowed out without winning a single game in the knockout stage. And look, I mean, for all the talk about treatment and equal treatment of, of women's games and sports, whether you're talking about women's soccer or the WNBA for professional basketball or the LPGA Tour for golf or on and on for a women's professional league to treat them the same. When, it, when a men's national team in any sport, when the United States was blowing games in basketball and being humiliated on the World Olympic stage and the World Championship stage, everybody said so and pointed it out as underachievement and what's going on. Um, and, and no different uh, when we talk big-time professional sports and men's sports like the NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball, the biggest of the big, when a team that is supposed to win flounders, they get criticized. They get blasted everywhere from the TV, uh, to the radio, to the podcast, to the internet. This is what happens. So when you blow it, when you choke it, like what this team did, the two-time defending champs who scored all of one goal in their last three games, who in their final two games didn't score a goal in the 90-minute game with Portugal and then didn't score a goal in 120 minutes. The U.S. team with all the talent and the firepower doesn't score at all in those games and loses on penalty kicks. When, when you come up with that kind of lack of progress or performance as the two-time defending champs, you deserve the criticism. And uh, so this notion that, oh, it's so petty and it's cheap shots. No, it's not. Not in that regard. Uh, and Carly Lloyd, again, uh, put this team in the crosshairs for not being ready to go. And, and yes, maybe she has problems with the new coach, Andadovich, uh, as a, as opposed to Jill Ellis, the, the female coach that won back-to-back World Cups. And again, uh, full disclosure here, I, I know more than most in the sports media having watched this team over and over again because my daughters have been interested in this for over a decade watching the women's national team. And I watched it even before that. I watched it closely even going back to the late 1990s and the early 2000s with Mia Hamm and Brandi Chastain and Michelle Akers and all of those players uh, that played Abby Wambach back in the 2000s, the uh, the early 2000s into the mid-2000s, et cetera, and then they gave way. Wambach was kind of the carryover that gave way to Megan Rapino, Alex Morgan, Carly Lloyd. I, I could talk this all day long. Uh, Hope Solo as the goalie, et cetera. Now the, now the names are Lindsey Horan as the top goal scorer or one of them, Sophia Smith as another goal scorer, Alyssa Nair as the goalie, and Alyssa Nair was huge in the penalty shootout, not only making a stop as the goalie, but she took a PK, a penalty kick, and scored on it 
when Megan Rapino failed and so did Sophia Smith and so did O'Hara, the reserve, who ultimately her miss was the most costly one in the sudden death part of the penalty kicks. But look, the criticism is warranted and it's fair. When you're this heavily favored, the overwhelming favorites, and you don't win a single game in the knockout round, I mean, it's one thing if they got to the final four and were upset or got to the championship and were beaten. That's that's much different. This is failing to score in your last group game and failing to score in the round of 16 game with all the talent you have and the firepower you have. That criticism deserves to be there. And furthermore, on the whole point of, uh, of well, wait a minute. Uh, what about if if your team is unlikable and your political stances have turned people off, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, if you if you choose to be divisive, and Megan Rapino is at the forefront of this, of being, I'm going to be in your face, divisive, and basically say, uh, with her SB award speech, et cetera, that if you don't embrace transgender young adult males and adult males playing female sports, that you're somehow on the wrong side of this when most of America overwhelmingly believes that's insanity and that that shouldn't be going on, if you're going to be divisive and you're going to create problems, you're going to have people root against you. And as as much as it shouldn't be that way, uh, that's human nature, and you caused that to happen. You're taking those chances. And for those who would say, oh, well, you know, she's got every right to say that. She's got every right to take advantage of the platform she has. She does have a right to take advantage of it. And if people are turned off about it and by by huge droves and numbers, they are turned off about it, then they have every right to root against you and what you stand for with that. And if you end up blowing a penalty kick with all of it on the line in an elimination game, it's not petty or unfair for people to point out you blew it and for people to further say, maybe you should have been a little less concerned about identity politics and social justice warrior stuff. And maybe you were dividing your own locker room, which there's a lot of belief that that was going on, that there are players within that locker room in total fear of, of speaking up and having a contrary view that we shouldn't be doing this for fear of what would happen to them for going against it. All, all I know is this. There have been unpopular, unlikable figures in all of sports going on and on. Whether you're talking about Barry Bonds in baseball with uh, allegations of uh, cheating and PEDs at a time when Major League Baseball wasn't testing and it was rampant and Barry Bonds' body became different from a baseball player and more like into a linebacker playing baseball. Uh, And the the humongous size that baseball players became in the late 90s and the early 2000s, and all of them are crushing home runs. And now, by and large, because of the testing, they don't look that way anymore. And by the way, the home run records aren't doing the same anymore. But Bonds was vilified and a hated figure because the overwhelming majority of people that had common sense and understood what was going on understood in the coverage that he should be vilified because he's cheating the game. He's doing something dirty to hit more home runs, doing something that other sports do test for and you shouldn't be allowed to do. If if you are choosing to go after Aaron Rodgers right now for whatever his political stances are and how he behaved at his exit with the Green Bay Packers because he's a divisive figure that got himself traded out of Green Bay and Aaron Rodgers starts to fail, if people want to revel in that and point that out, that's how it works. That's how it works in sports. 
And the U.S. women's national team should not be any different than that. This is a failure. And I know Alexi Lawless brought up uh, the fact as a former decorated U.S. men's player, they have him there as an analyst on the studio, that there's a segment of America that was turned off about this, a large segment that was turned off about this. I mean, again, uh, the vast majority of people have a problem, not just with not singing the words to the national anthem, but the women's national team in a game uh, back uh, a few years ago, elected to turn their backs on a 90-year-old World War II veteran who was playing a harmonica before one of their games, was playing the Star-Spangled Banner. And they turned their backs on him and refused to acknowledge him and say, and that turned a ton of people off. You're going to do divisive things. People are going to root against you. Uh, by the way, as the ratings go, as we talked about last week on the show, just dismal. I mean, their, their performance uh, in the group stage relegated them to playing in the middle of the night U.S. time with the time difference from New Zealand and Australia. And the, the round of 16 has now moved into Australia. Round of eight now going to be played this weekend. So the U.S. team played at 5 a.m. Eastern time, 4 Central, adjust your time zone accordingly Sunday morning. And the ratings are in at just over 2 million people that watched on average for Fox. Now, the rating was better as the game moved into overtime or extra time from the uh, 7.30 a.m. mark on, where more people were obviously awake in the East and the Central time zone. The game, and they're now realizing it's in overtime, could be a golden goal here. Actually, it's not a golden goal. It's not sudden death. It score as many times as you can in overtime in FIFA World Cup soccer. But when more people realize they're in extra time overtime, the numbers swelled to 4 million people. Still, that is uh, a fraction of what it would have been had this game been on in Saturday night primetime, like Fox had hoped. Or if the U.S. team had advanced, and later this week they were playing Thursday night in primetime in the round of eight, the quarterfinals. So a dismal rating for Fox. Their ratings are now going to be a disaster for the remainder of the Women's World Cup, because most of it, again, is going on in the middle of the night U.S. time. They'll be lucky to get a million people to watch. So a huge disappointment for Fox, and you got to take the good with the bad. I mean, the men's team that has much more uh, interest worldwide in the men's World Cup, the men's team always, always falters and is out before the Elite Eight, the Final Four. We didn't make the World Cup back in 2019. So this is an expectation. Fox has got the World Cup rights for the U.S. paying hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars for the Men's World Cup, and the U.S. team never does anything for the men. At least the women have won the previous two World Cups. So I think now, uh, as before we move on here to Brett McMurphy to second, just in closing, uh, usher in the new guard of players, be less concerned about being social justice warriors and identity politics and the in-your-face stuff and divisive get back to rooting for the country the flag you want to drape the flag around you and and celebrate with america america's not celebrating transgender young men and men playing against high school and college age athletes get away from that platform get away from dividing people with that platform uh hold the door for megan rapino if she wants to be in your face with that her career is done she's 39 she's at the end usher that out because you didn't win with that indisputable you didn't even come close to winning with a divided situation and people rooting against you you can go on and on about what the myriad of reasons might be but you can centrally hone in on that when you're dividing your own locker room and again i believe when some of these players get the freedom to speak later on and i know i'm kind of going on a tangent here on the last word on sports media podcast but look at the look at the media uh coverage in and around 
uh, William Thomas, who's now Leah Thomas, having been a swimmer at, at Pennsylvania at Penn, University of Pennsylvania in the Ivy League, and a former teammate has now spoken out to the media and everywhere, going on the speaking tour, about how she was basically threatened with, don't go against this. Don't speak out against this. You'll be ruined. You'll be canceled. You don't, and I bring it now back to the U.S. women's national team. Do you think everybody in that locker room was going along with what Ray, Megan Rapino was doing in particular with the in-your-face identity politics and social agenda stuff and uh, and 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 woke leftist ideas bringing into the locker room to divide everybody? You think everybody was going along with that and that diverse locker room of different people and different backgrounds? Of course they weren't. But the fear of being canceled from it is at the forefront. I'm just saying get back to winning for the good old U.S. of A. And maybe I'm naive to think that we're going to get that way. Um, I think the U.S. Soccer Federation should take a long look at this failure, and it is a failure, to not even get into the Final Four of the championship match, to not even score a goal, to score one goal in your final three games, to not even score a goal in the last two games. It's a failure. It's a failure for this team. So I spent a lot of time on that. We're going to move on to other subject matter. Uh, that we want to get to here on the podcast, including the college football landscape. Let's get to it now and the uh, the disintegration of the Pac-12 and what this means with media rights and how it works. I want to go to the premier information guy. He's one of them. I believe he's the premier one, Brett McMurphy of the Action Network, on a conversation not so much on what happened in the news. Yes, there's some of that in our conversation that we had, but how he goes about breaking news and how it works with information I think you'll find this fascinating from a sports media standpoint. Let's go to our conversation, which took place on Monday night with all the news breaking everywhere. And you'll hear Brett qualifying that we're doing this on Monday night. And there could be more news breaking about other conferences and the full disintegration of the last four teams, in the Pac-12. Let's get into that now as the last word on sports media podcast does roll on here. I think you're going to enjoy this. As mentioned, love this man's insight. It has been uh, a little while since I've had a chance to catch up with Brett McMurphy on all things. Shame nothing's going on in terms of conference realignment and everything happening. Uh, I, but first of all, I always love having you on, but especially in circumstances like this, where, as I like to say, the ground is shaking constantly with the, the realignment. The fact that you've carved out a few minutes for me. Uh, and have put how many devices do you have? Like seven to to be the number one insider, which you are in college football for the info. Do you have like fifteen devices? How many is it? It's good to have you back, Brett. Thanks, TJ. Uh, I actually just have one, but um, you know, last week was obviously very crazy, <laughs> and I purposely did not. You know, I turned down. You know, look, I get radio interviews from time to time. Um, especially when stuff like this is going on. So last week, I purposely, on Friday, I knew that a lot of stuff could happen. So I didn't accept a lot of interviews. I literally accepted one interview. It was a national show. Um, and literally, while I'm on the call, I get a call from a source about Oregon and Washington going to the Big Ten. I did break that by literally seconds over some other national guys. If I wouldn't have been doing the radio show, I would have had them by 10 minutes. Sure, sure. So I was, and literally when I got the call, I thought, oh my God, should I hang out? I like, hey guys, I got to go. And right. I thought, ah, I'll, I'll finish the interview. And so never again. Well, so, I, um, I do know this. You've been doing this for a long time. You're great at it, and you're great with me. So I contacted Brett as we pulled the veil back about the possibility of coming on either last week or this week. And you said, number one, I'm on vacation, which I'm proud of you. 
with wife and daughter, and I try to do the same thing. Uh, there's no such thing as vacation, especially for a guy yeah, like exactly. you. you trying. But you yeah. said you even hinted to me you don't want me right now. You want me a little later than right now when right. everything starts to happen. And boy, were you right. So let's get right into it. Um, it's easy to say now, but could you see this coming to a head like you said Two weeks ago when Colorado left and early last week, this is coming to a head late this week, and it's just a matter of how many of these Pac-12 teams are going to leave. Well, I was fairly confident that Colorado was going to leave. In fact, I I joked with somebody, if Vegas would have had a line on who's going to be the first school to change conferences like three months ago, I would have put my life savings, my house, everything on Colorado. Because I knew they were that far along. I knew they wanted to go. I knew they didn't need to see what the Pac-12 media deal was. They had made the decision. It was just finalizing everything and moving on. So after that happened, I thought Arizona would be next. And then it kind of got down to last week where, you know, Arizona was was waffling. They were in, they were out. And then, you know, the Pac-12 is making this late run at it. And, you know, maybe they can save the Pac-12 and then – the Big Ten low-balled Oregon, and Oregon said, no, we're not going to do it. And then some stuff leaked that, hey, the Pac-12 is going to stay together. So the Big Ten went back at Oregon and Washington and got them. And, um, you know, and then, yeah, all hell broke loose. And then at that point, you know, everybody was climbing for higher ground. Uh, Big 12 adds not only Arizona, but Arizona State and Utah. And then now we're left with the Pac-4, I guess is what we're going to call it for now. Yep. And TJ, I don't I don't think I don't see how they survive because and there are a hundred different options, but basically of the four members, you've got two that are like Oregon State and Washington State. And then you've got two that are like Cal and Stanford, but they're they're all different. Like mm-hmm. Stanford could be an independent because they have the best all around athletic department. Um, bar none in the last 25 years. Unfortunately, they don't draw a lot of eyeballs as far as TV. Cal has the biggest debt of any athletic department in the country. They've got a board of regents meeting on Tuesday morning. And, um, you know, I think, I hate to say this, TJ, I think in, I don't know, in five to 10 years, if Cal will still be playing division one football. Wow. Because they had, well, because they had been planning for, you know, we're going to get this media rights deal. Currently, we have one with the Pac-12. And then going forward, we're going to have a better deal. They've got all this debt on their football stadium, all this other debt. So now they're basically going to have less revenue coming in. And it's like, you know, I go out and buy a house, but based on my employer paying me a certain number. And then, you know, a couple months in, then my employer says, oh, by the way, we're cutting your salary in half. And then I've got to find a new place to live because I can't afford what I just bought. Sure. Sure. I think that's where they're at. And there are no solutions for them. There's, you know, as we tape this Monday night, there's reports about, you know, oh, maybe they're talking to the ACC. That's the one. That's the worst idea if you're the ACC to bring in Cal and Stanford. That's not going to do anything for your football product. Right. And it's not going to increase eyeballs and ESPN still going to pay you the same. Wait a minute. I don't aren't know what we they clamoring, do. Aren't we clamoring for Wake Forest against Cal? Aren't we clamoring for Stanford <laughs> Uh, against NC State, please, Boston College, please, please. No, I totally understand, and they're obviously 
uh, under duress. And, and I didn't disclaim right away what we should disclaim. You're hearing us midweek in, on the last word on Sports Media Podcast. And there may be more movement involving Stanford and Cal that Brett has already broken uh, as, this, as the podcast comes out or Oregon State and Washington State. And we'll get to that in a second. Uh, but I mean, Cal is obviously in financial peril and there's not a golden parachute for them, I don't believe. I say that and, and I'm in agreement with you. So I'm curious about a couple of parts of this. Number one, did you get about seven hours of sleep last week? Just from a sports media interest standpoint, fans of this podcast, of this genre, are interested in the how the sausage is made part from insiders like you. Were you on like a two-hour sleep schedule like Wednesday night, Thursday night, knowing full well the news could be breaking in the middle of the night, especially Pacific time zone? How did that work real quick? Yeah, basically, uh, Wednesday night, Thursday night, you know, you keep texting people, calling people till one or two East Coast time because you got people on the West Coast, so it's not as late. And then you get up at 6 a.m. and then start calling all your texting all your East Coast people. Um, and then, yeah, Friday when all that broke down, I went to I went to bed Thursday, late Thursday night and thought Oregon and Washington are the Big Ten. And then I thought. Arizona to the to the uh, Big 12 and then I got up Friday morning and I was getting some texts like hey it looks like the Pac-12 may have been able to keep this together other reporters were were reporting the similar things and then I got a call from a text from one of my sources and um, I, I always like to tell people I have like five people you know people I always ask about you know my sources and I'm like well I've got like five people if they text me right now that the world is going to end, I will tweet the world is ending. I will not, conf- I will not confirm it. You're not consulting um, other- the book of Revelation. You're not consulting no, a psychic. I'm gone, I'm- You're not consulting anything else. You're going with it. You're going with it. Send tweet. Yeah, I, I trust them that much. They know what I'm doing. I've, I've known them long enough. They know, you know, they know the ins and outs of everything. So they're not going to give me something that's not right. 100%. So this was one of these. This is one of my five. And this was at literally at 10 a.m. when the Pac-12 meeting was getting ready to start. And um, I said they text me. They actually called me. And I said, hey, so Pac-12 sticking together. Uh, you know, I've seen all this different stuff from, uh, from uh, you know, on Twitter and social media and everything. And he goes, no. He goes, everything that's out there is 100% inaccurate. <laughs> Oregon and Washington to the Big Ten and Arizona and Utah – to the big 12. So then I tweeted sometime after 10 AM. I don't have the exact timeline. I'm sure um, some Twitter sleuths could look at it, but I think I tweeted within the next, uh, hopefully it was the next 30 minutes to an hour trying to get everything squared away. That basically Oregon and Washington were headed to the, to the big 10. As long as the financial stuff got worked out, then I got word while doing the interview that it had got worked out and uh, reported that. And then Arizona state was still holding on, trying to stay in the, stay in the PAC 12 and their president, Michael Crow said in an interview the other day that basically they did not talk to the big 12 until about one 30 on Friday. And, but at that point, Arizona and Utah had already made the decision they were coming and they obviously, you know, preferred to bring in Arizona state to make it an even number. If they you, would not do, have brought in Arizona state, they probably would have looked at, at UConn or San Diego in, state. Oh, wow. Interesting on that, on that. The, the theory was out there that the three of them, Arizona, Arizona state, 
and Utah had an alliance where they were not going to go as individuals. They were going to go as a group of three. Do you believe that was wrong just because of the report? Do you believe that reporting was wrong and that Arizona State legitimately was not involved with the other two until Friday afternoon? Yes, that was not correct. They they all three did not have a deal. They were when I was told at 10 a.m. Arizona and Utah were in, but I could not report that because of various reasons with my sources, which I can't get into that. Right. But right. um too much how the sausage is made. But basically, um it would expose some people and it would, you know, it and so I couldn't go with it then. But no, the Arizona and Utah had decided at that point they were coming, which is funny because the whole time leading up to this, Utah had been very, you know, very vocal about we're committed to the Pac-12. You know, we're going to stay. We're going to keep this thing together. And look, I believe them. Everybody's committed until you're not committed. Um, Utah, Utah was smart enough to say, look, this is not a one or two year decision. This is a 10 or 20 year decision. And so where's the Pac-12 going to be? 10 years from now where's the big 12 going to be 10 years from now well the pac 12s future was always dependent on the big 10 not taking oregon and washington after getting usc and ucla so utah was smart enough to recognize that and got on board right away arizona state kind of got on board you know kind of kind of got kicking and screaming got drug in and then you i don't know if you saw the quote from ray anderson their athletic director the other day he's talking about you know the going to the big 12 and he mentions well you know i'm never going to make the trip to morgantown my associate ad can make that trip i'm excited about playing arizona and going to texas and playing colorado and it's like dude this is not the thing you say when you first join the conference i'm not attending you know i'm not going to one of the neighboring or one of the conference members wow uh, all right, so that's an interesting aspect to this. And again, Brett McMurphy only with me for a few more minutes. He's a man in demand, and he's trying to get last vacation days in before the season begins. He's the number one information guy with the Action Network, and I've known Brett for the better part of about uh, 25 years. All right, so this is a fascinating one from the sports media standpoint. You have been lied to and burned in the past. How did you <laughs> filter? And I know this. Uh, uh, you, you told me yeah. about this, and everybody goes through it. How did you filter to, filter through, I could be – being lied to right here on this information and how many times did you question and start to filter through maybe this is maybe i'm being lied to so i'll put this out there by a school that's not really involved with that conference that wants everybody to think they are because it helps their case how many times did you have to put that filter on last week three ten twenty two yeah well it's a lot and you're right TJ. like i said you know if, if, if my if my fab five is if it doesn't come from them then i've got to <laughs> confirm it from somebody else um, and a lot of times I get fed a lot of garbage and actually, you know, I don't think he'll mind me sharing this, but Stuart Mandel, who I've known, you know, as long as I've known you, uh, now at the athletic, you know, we were, we're kind of texting back and forth about kind of all the stuff at the PAC 12. And you saw a lot of the PAC 12 reporters out West in the past 13 months say they're going to have a better deal than the big 12. It's a layup to get to this number. No schools are ever leaving, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, it's because they're basically just, you'll love this, they are parroting what they are being told. They are just repeating what they're being told. They're That's not right. seeing if it's true. And Stewart kind of said, you know, I kind of fell for some of this stuff too. And the way I look at it is, you know, I'd rather get beat on 100 stories and be wrong on one. 
So if somebody tells me something, then I want to make sure that it's that it's rock solid before I go with it because everyone's got their agendas. I understand. That's right. If if somebody at Michigan tells me that Michigan State is you know uh, had several recruiting violations, it may be true, but I'm certainly not going to take them for the word. Um, if it's somebody at Michigan telling me there, there's some issues at Michigan, I'll be more likely to believe it. Not that I would go report it, but obviously I'll go track it down. But I even mentioned to Stuart, I said, you know, basically, you know, I told him, you know, keep in mind. I mean, he knows what he's doing. But I said, I just look at it like everybody is lying to you when you talk to people, especially of <laughs> the media. Just, everybody's just to what degree? Are they no, lying everybody's us? lying to you. So what you can do is you can take all that lies and kind of find out the truth that way. Right. And so that's kind of what I do is I kind of do that. And also. And you know this, TJ, as long as you've been doing this, the, you know, the, the great job you've done throughout your career is when you know people well, sometimes you learn something by what they don't tell you. That's right. And that's a lot of the lot of ways sometimes, not that I'm, again, I'm not going to go with something because somebody didn't tell me something, but I also know with my relationships there are certain people that will lie to me and I know they lie to me and I know that's part of it. So I just accept it and deal with it. There's other people I know that won't lie to me. So when I ask them, Hey, is X, Y, Z happening? And then they suddenly won't text me back when they've been texting me 50 times in the last week, then I know I may be onto something and I need to pursue it and find it out a different way because they respect me enough. They're not going to lie to me. Because they know if I get a hold of them, I'm going to say, is X, Y, Z happening? And they're going to have to say, I can't tell you right? or I can't comment. And then they're basically telling me, yes, you've got this. You've got this down pat. I got you. You you did it perfectly with the way you did that. And I'm going to come back around here with Brett McMurphy to all the president's men, which you and I both love. And the depiction by Robert Redford and uh, Dustin Hoffman of Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein and how they busted up basically the Nixon administration and ultimately caused his resignation uh, during all that. You love the non-denial denial, which came out of that. So there's some there's some of those. But also there's a very famous scene in that movie. And again, for the Gen Zers, the millennials that are under 30 that have no idea what we're talking about, go see the 1970s movie, All the President's Men. If you want to see true reporting, and yes, it's Hollywood's portrayal, but it's pretty well on uh, on point on how these guys dug it up. And there's one scene where uh, uh, Hoffman's character as Bernstein is on the phone with a source, and he says, if we're wrong about this, if I'm wrong about it, if I got it wrong, hang up the phone. And so the guy says, okay, yeah, uh, you want me to hang up if you're wrong? He says, yes. So he starts rattling stuff off and he goes, are you still there? And he says, yes. And he <laughs> says, and he says, and then, the, and then the source says, you got what you needed? He says, yes. And they hang up. Right. So in other words, it's not that you confirmed any of it. It's just in that instance, you didn't hang up and you're saying the same thing. When they don't get back to me, and it's, a, and it's a legitimate person that you really trust, maybe that's it. Maybe, maybe another, that's it all along. Another yeah, thing ahead. I love. TJ, I love about that movie is there's a part in the movie where Robert Redford is investigating what all is going on. And he gets a call from one of the government agencies. I forgot specifically who it was. And they said, um, you know, so-and-so is on the phone. They have a statement. And he goes, a statement. And he goes, yeah, they have a statement for you. And he goes, I didn't ask for a statement. So like right there, they know they're trying to cover up something because right. they know he's onto it and he hasn't even asked for it. 
Um, but one other thing real quick on how the sausage is made. You asked about, you know, last week and everything I was experiencing. So about for the three, actually the, the whole week from Monday through Friday, when the PAC 12 meeting happened on Tuesday until Friday, when everything blew up. Um, I know you're a big movie guy. Uh, Unfortunately, this is not a roadhouse reference, but it is a reference <laughs> for my minority report. So yes. in the okay. past, in the past week, I felt like one of those precogs <laughs> where I'm laying in the water You're in the pool, on like the little floaty. I'm in the, I'm with in the, the pool, earphones any, on. Anytime I get a scoop, I'm creating a ball and it comes out and <laughs> all the sirens are going off and I'm just praying I can get to the end of the movie where I'm off in the house, you know, out, <laughs> out on the coast, sitting there comfortably reading right. a book and decompressing. I love it. Unfortunately, that's not going to happen anytime soon because there's going to be some movement in the oh. ACC in the next week. And it just, wow. The, it just there's keeps spinning. Yeah. All right. So there's a couple minutes left here. So in other words, you would rather have that alternative than having Max von Sydow shoot you, <laughs> which is the other <laughs> alternative in the minority report exactly. that you got it right uh, from one of your sources. That's great. And the name is Dalton, by the way. He and I are huge Roadhouse yeah, fans Dalton. forever. When's forever. the remake? I don't know. Did you they keep do telling it? me. You keep telling me Jake Gyllenhaal and the remake, and I keep telling you blasphemy is my words back word back to you. I'm not. I'm not going to see this thing. I do not want to taint what is a classic bad good movie uh, from the exactly. late Patrick Swayze and Sam Elliott and um, all those Max, guys. Ben Gazzara. Yeah. Oh, Ben Gazzara. Uh, that's right. Uh, ben Gazzara, who is uh, Wesley. Wesley. Brad Wesley. Yes. Uh, but in, in any event, uh, in the couple of minutes that I have left with you, you just tease that the ACC may not be done and shaken. I'm fascinated by the Mountain West, which has a conference, by the way, unlike the Pac-12, now down to the Pac-4. The Mountain West has a, uh, a pitiful TV deal that only pays their schools $4 million um, each. They can probably renegotiate right now in this environment. Why would the Mountain West have not already made a move or make a move for Oregon State and Washington State, who are regionally close to programs like Boise State, Fresno State, Utah State, keep them in the same region. That seems too logical for me. Is the Mountain West going to be a player? What do you What do you think? And the TV leverage they would have, because they're in the middle of a six-year deal, right in the middle of it, they could renegotiate. ESPN is currently out of their TV deal, but without a Pac-12, ESPN might get back in and might pay them significantly more Am I crazy to connect those dots, Brent, without you having to break everything here on this podcast? Am I crazy to connect that? Uh, that That's a possibility. I think Oregon State and Washington State, the last resort is to go to the Mountain West. And the Mountain West has a deal with Fox and CBS Sportsnet. That's right. Um, the deal with – so ESPN has the Big 12, so keep in mind, they just added five schools in the Mountain Time Zone. All you have to do is move those kickoffs back an hour, and then you could fit in that 1030 Eastern, um, you know, Big 12 after dark if you want. Mm -hmm. I think Oregon State and Washington State would be a great addition to the Mountain West. But, again, they're coming from a Power 5 conference, and that's a last resort for them to do that. Actually, I, let me correct you in a, in a fun way. They're coming from a yes. non-conference. They don't have a conference. So you got to exactly. find something. Well, they something. do for, for one more year. Well, they yeah, do. but, but you got to find yeah. something. And the Mountain West could very well slide in as a more important conference making more money. I, I'm not negotiating on their behalf. I'm just pointing this out. I don't know. I don't know. Right. I think they, they would see a little bump, but I don't think they're going to go from $4 million to, to $10 million per school. Probably not. I mean, because... Yeah, but they could see a slight bump. Um, but yeah, I mean, it would be great for the Mountain West because, you know, 
Um, if there is no Pac-12, Pac I think the college football playoff going forward when we go to 12 teams next year, I think they'll change the requirements um, from the top highest rated six conference – the six highest rated conference champs. I think they'll drop that to five highest rated conference champs and then take an additional at-large team if we lose the Pac-12 because then we go from 10 conferences to nine conferences. Well, we'll see what they do, and I know you got to go here in just a moment or two. I know we talked at this time last year, and I said to you, it would not surprise me if the Big Ten comes back and raids at least uh, Oregon and Washington, if not four or six more schools. It just does a pack, uh, it does a Big Ten West, and and you said to me at that time, that's the end of the Pac-12. We are we are now seeing the end of the Pac-12 coming up. I, I think that's pretty well a conclusion uh, that we can draw on that. One more thing, and I know you have to go on this you mentioned just a second ago uh, this week could still uh see several more moves made and so you've got to be on low sleep alert high phone battery and all that for this week you really believe that well the deadline for the acc schools is august 15th if a school wants to leave the acc and join a new conference in 2024 they have to leave by august 15th so that's the that's the requirement they do also have to pay a 120 million dollar exit fee and they got to find their way to get out of a $360 million grant of rights deal, 12 years of media rights. I don't necessarily think the ACC is going to let Florida State, Clemson, et cetera, just sign a check and get out. Because then what happened to the Pac-12 could happen to the ACC. The only benefit the ACC has is they have more schools. I don't think they're going to lose the entire lineup of the ACC schools. But certainly when you lose your big bell cows, Notre Dame, who plays five games against the ACC every year, how receptive are they going to be to continue that when you lose, if sure. you lose a Florida sure. State, Clemson, Miami, North Carolina, Virginia, et cetera? So that's keep your eyes on that one um, between now and August 15th. Notre Dame and Stanford to the Big Ten on a scale of one to 10 right now is a one, it's a three, it's a five. Notre Dame and Stanford. What would your gauge be at the moment if you were just speculating and guessing? What was the question again? Notre Dame and Stanford to the Big Ten. Is that a one? No, to the Big Ten. Is that a uh, one? Stan- Is that a three? Stanford's, Stanford's a two. Notre Dame's infinity because the Big Ten would take them in a heartbeat. It's just if Notre Dame ever makes that decision. And again, if they were to go in with Stanford and USC as conference opponents, they already play two or three Big Ten teams anyway. So who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? I know this man is the information guy. I know he has to leave. I'd love to talk more about movies with you realignment and other things, but you've got to go. You were most gracious to tell me uh, some of the background and how it all gets uh, meted out on social media and for you with the Action Network. Brett McMurphy, thank you for hanging with me on the last Word on Sports Media podcast. Thanks, TJ. So there you go. And again, I've known Brett for the better part of 25 years. Does an amazing job. And and you may very well know as we release this podcast now overnight, Tuesday into Wednesday, that there's more moving and shaking, more earth shattering stuff here in college football where ACC teams are looking to defect. You know, Brett brought up the great point at the end of our conversation. There's hundreds of millions of dollars at stake for these teams trying to leave the ACC. How are they going to do it? Lawyers involved. And in particular, here's the key. And Tyler Jones brought this up last week. Why would ESPN let the disintegration of the ACC happen if Florida State and Clemson are looking to be SEC schools? ESPN totally controls that. I mean, here we are back to sports media. They totally control that conference financially now and televising it, pumping the money through it. 
Why are they going to let another one of their properties disintegrate to put these teams into the SEC so that they can make more money than what they're making in the ACC with something they agreed to do? They agreed to the grant of rights. They agreed to the long-term commitment to the ACC. Why would ESPN let that happen? It would be one thing if Florida State was trying to defect and be a Big Ten school, but ESPN's going to stand in the way, too, of that. So Tyler brought that up as a point last week, and we'll see what the ACC does, what happens to the remaining Pac-12 teams. I still stand by Oregon State and Washington State would be better off going into the Mountain West, and the Mountain West becomes more viable, and you get a more lucrative television deal than what they're going to get on their own. I don't know that the Big 12 takes them. I don't know that they take either Oregon State or Washington State at this point. They're at 16 teams and probably good. Now, if it goes to 20 teams and those teams uh, now have a natural tie-in to Western teams like Colorado and Utah that they were playing before, Arizona, Arizona State that they were playing before in the old Pac-12, now the Pac-4, we'll see. But Red did a good job of explaining all that. Hope you enjoyed that. Here's part of the last word on Sports Media Podcast. All right, before we get out of here, two more things. Uh, Again, as we release this podcast, I'm telling you right now that I was taking a little last-second vacation with my my twin daughters, my 15-year-old twin daughters, on Tuesday and Wednesday. So uh, full disclosure, I'm recording this on Monday night. And the news has gotten out all Monday about Baltimore Orioles broadcaster and ESPN broadcaster, speaking of them for football and basketball, Kevin Brown. Kevin has been an up-and-coming broadcaster for the last five or six years, national play-by-play, and he's been working with the Baltimore Orioles now. I believe this is his second season with them. So it all came out on Monday that he's quietly been put on indefinite suspension. For what? For doing something wrong? Uh, No. For lying on the air? No. For a, 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 a problem with players or with the manager? No. None of those things are correct. No, Kevin Brown is shelved because he and the producers and those behind the broadcast on the Mid-Atlantic Sports Network, Masson, decided to point out that the Baltimore Orioles' record against my Tampa Bay Rays has been awful for a few years, and only recently have the Orioles had a chance to be as good as the Tampa Bay Rays. They have been a laughingstock franchise, Peter Angelos, the owner. For the better part of two decades, they have been a laughingstock franchise. So Kevin was pointing out, again at the behest of the producers, etc., that the Orioles would have a chance to beat the Tampa Bay Rays late in July in a four-game series, and they did. They won three of the four games, and it was going to be the first time that they outright won a series in four years against the Rays, who've been much better against them, have owned them. So the Orioles put him in the deep freeze, put him in the freezer behind the old ice cream and the old frozen egos and everything else, and now it has just gotten out here the first week in August that this is why Kevin Brown is not doing games, is because of what he said in the pregame coverage before their series finale with the Rays in St. Petersburg, Florida, where the Orioles went on to win the game and win the series for the first time in four years they had won a series against the Rays. So broadcasters everywhere are pointing this out, and I I have a feeling Mike Gill and Phil DeMont-Mullen will be all all over this on the Announcer Schedules podcast on this podcast feed later in the week. This is Bush League stuff by the Orioles. And Rob Manfred and the Major League Baseball Uh, board, they should step in and say to the Orioles, what are you doing here? You're creating a negative firestorm of controversy around a really good season in Baltimore where they may end up winning the division and being a playoff team. I still think the Rays will ultimately end up winning the East, but the Orioles may be a playoff team for the first time in a few years. They've had a couple of seasons where the Orioles have been eliminated basically from contention by August the 15th, just out of it. 
really eliminated in April or May with an awful roster. Lose 100 games, lose 110 games, awful. They have a chance to contend. And so you've got broadcasters everywhere. I heard Gary Cohen on Monday night, the Mets broadcaster, blasting them. Dave O'Brien, the the Red Sox uh, uh, play-by-play guy, blasting them. Jason Bonetti, a contemporary of Kevin Brown's, an up-and-coming broadcaster of the last 10, 15 years, he's taking shots at him. All over sports, ESPN colleagues coming to his defense. I'm coming to his defense right here. He didn't do anything wrong. And the Orioles are being petty and stupid and creating a firestorm where one doesn't exist. So hopefully by the time you're hearing this, Kevin Brown is back on the air because the Orioles have been named and shamed for doing idiotic, petty things. And if they don't, then hopefully some other Major League Baseball team hires Kevin Brown and puts them on. And and hopefully this is bad karma for the Orioles and for their owner, who's been a horrific owner. And his attendance and his ratings have plummeted because his teams have been awful and he's been a horrific owner. Not unlike having to remove Daniel Snyder eventually. Baseball won't get rid of this guy, just like the NFL. Not for being a horrible owner with product on the field and how bad you treat your employees like Kevin Brown, or how how bad Daniel Snyder treated his employees, it apparently would only take Major League Baseball removing him if he was cheating the other owners out of money, which is part of why Daniel Snyder was gone in investigations. Is ultimately, oh, he's cheating the other owners out of money. Now we'll vote you out. Now we'll vote make you sell your team and, and vote you out. So we'll see what baseball does with the Orioles, and you may not know the answer right now from a sports media standpoint that Kevin Brown is reinstated, but right now free Kevin Brown is everywhere on social media. And good for everybody standing up, and I'm going to do the same here on the last word on sports uh, here on the program. And before we get out of here, by the way, golf continues to ramp up. I know we got preseason football coming. Never so much have so many people cared by the millions and millions to watch preseason football. And by the way, if you're gambling on preseason football, get some help. For God's sake, go to a 12-step meeting. Get a counselor if you're wagering on preseason games. I mean, I'm not. I'm going to be the first one to tell you, be interested in the college season and the NFL season if you're looking to wager. It's legal. But for God's sake, if you're wagering on preseason football, you're also wagering in a Vegas hotel on which elevator is coming down first. Or if you're at the baggage carousel at Harry Reid Airport in Vegas, you're wagering on what color the, the first bag is going to be that comes off the baggage carousel, red, blue, green. What are you doing? But in any event, we do have preseason football. We do have baseball still in the dog days of summer. Postseason will be here around the corner. Uh, but also the golf has gotten interesting. The live golf, uh, I mean, I know their ratings are not very good on the CW, but the CW is ramping up sports coverage. They're going to have ACC football coming this fall. They've gotten the inside the NFL show uh, that's upcoming. Uh, the CW was bidding in some form or fashion to be in on the Pac-12. It doesn't really exist anymore. Uh, the CW might get in as another rights holder. Uh, the CW also involved in the Live Golf Series, which, by the way, played at the Greenbrier in West Virginia this past week and won an amazing final round on Sunday. It had been moved up because of bad weather to Sunday morning. It ended up finishing just after 1 Eastern time in uh, in West Virginia with Bryson DeChambeau, former U.S. Open champion, former U.S. Amateur champion, DeChambeau shooting a 58, a magical number in the final round on a par 70 golf course to smash the field in the live golf event. I know it's 54 holes, not 72 holes, but still a 58 is a 58. And the PGA Tour played that course for years. And when Stuart Appleby shot the first 59 in years on the PGA Tour on that course, everybody reveled in it. It's good for the game of golf, and I enjoy the game of golf, and I love the commentary 
down the stretch from Arlo White, who's British, on the call. Jerry Fultz and the and the David Faraday were on the call. DeShambo birdieing 16, 17, and 18. A 13 birdie final round and a 40-foot putt. Great call from Arlo White on DeShambo shooting 58 and Arlo White going out of his mind. So that was quite the moment. And I know the PGA Tour playoffs are in Memphis, my hometown, for this week. Three weeks of the PGA Tour playoffs headed to the Tour Championship. We'll see what kind of drama they have in their playoffs, but I don't I don't know that it's going to match what DeShambo did. And by the way, the Live Golf Series is also playing this week at Donald Trump, President Trump's course, uh, the Bedminster course in New Jersey. So back-to-back weeks uh, in the United States, and then they will end up finishing up later this year with a couple of more stops, including in Saudi Arabia and then Miami for their end of the year. And by the way, a shout-out, my buddy John Lewis and his site, sportsmediawatch.com, um, one of his writers, um, Drew Doughty, uh, wrote this week about the Live Golf Series and got some great insight from their chief uh, broadcasting officer and their and their people behind the scenes. He went to the Green Briar and uh, in West Virginia into the resort and got interviews with those people and did a great in depth two part piece that's on SportsMediaWatch.com. And so go read, uh, it's Drew Lerner. I may have said Drew Downing, Drew Lerner's piece on that. Drew, shout out, great job on that piece. Um, it, it, writing about Live Golf, and Live Golf is going to continue to exist. From everything that I have heard, I'm not the most plugged-in golf insider. They're going to have a 2024 schedule, and they're going to play events. And I don't think this, this new co, this new company, is going to outlaw the Live Golf Series. I think it is going to still exist, and you've got to make an argument to the U.S. Department of Justice that you're not a monopoly. So uh, the DP World Tour has to still go on, and I think the Live Golf Series will still go on. And the belief is, from Drew Lerner's reporting, is they'll play seven international events, seven American events next year, and I think the ratio is 9-5 to this year. These guys, I mean, they spent hundreds and hundreds and hundreds practically a billion dollars on players and the startup cost and everything to play for two seasons they're not just going to go away uh here uh not when the pga tour buckled and the pif fund is still financially in control and this is uh yasser al ramayan's uh baby here as he's as he self-described it i believe they're going to still continue to play so you're going to have two different golf series that are going on the pga tour and the live golf series and i'm all for it i'm all for uh better golf worldwide golf i'll watch the pga tour playoffs i'll watch the Ryder cup uh but i mean there are numerous tremendous world-class players that are playing on the live golf series bryson dechambeau is one of them brooks kepka is another one who just won a a major championship at the pga championship again earlier this year dustin johnson there cam smith the australian who won the the Open Championship last year and the Players' Championship last year, you've got numerous big-time, world-class golfers on that series, and I enjoy great golf. I'm going to keep watching, and they're going to keep going on. And I'm somebody that was at the forefront back in May when the golf media, like Brett was talking about the Pac-12 media parroting what the schools were saying and not really going and finding out for themselves and reporting. It's the same thing for the golf media that were lapping up the PGA Tour talking points. Back when that first announcement came about the joint venture, oh, the Live Golf Series is going to be extinguished by Jay Monahan and by this new company. On what basis is that? What leverage do they have to put them out of business? They've already buckled. They've already bowed down that they, they lost the money versus money fight. And the Live Golf Series is doing some things smartly and well 
with the team concept they have, with trying to get younger, some of the different stuff they wanted to implement on the PGA Tour, and Jay Monahan and the and the board members and and those that were involved didn't want to hear about it, didn't want to do it, and yet some of it is now not just the money. Some of it's going to probably be put into play with the team concept, et cetera, to grow the game and get younger. So let's see what ends up happening. I'm just saying fantastic moment for Bryson DeChambeau. And again, he's a polarizing figure too. He's a guy that isn't the most popular guy among other golfers and golf fans. We were talking about Megan Rapinoe, Barry Bonds, Aaron Rodgers. DeChambeau's kind of the same way. So one of the so-called villains of golf had a massive, massive weekend. His first live golf win with a 58 in the final round. 59 was always the magical number on the PGA Tour. But a 58, yes, on a par 70, but it's still a 58. You don't have as many par fives on a par 70. Incredible round for DeChambeau to win that tournament. All right, so we've given you a bunch on the last word on Sports Media Podcast. Again, I'm going to take a couple of vacation days here. I'll be part of the NFL preseason with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers radio broadcast as they will battle the Pittsburgh Steelers for however long the starters play. Baker Mayfield quarterback competition with Kyle Trash, the third-year player. So let's see what happens with that quarterback battle. But the preseason getting underway. Uh, we mentioned the golf going on, the baseball going on. The women, again, are out of the Women's World Cup, so that's a disaster for Fox. And the college football landscape, you will know later this week, are there more ACC teams abandoning ship here this week, this weekend? Is there going to be more moving and shaking with Washington State and Oregon State jumping to another conference? Stay tuned for all of this. And again, we thank Brett McMurphy from the Action Network. You need to be following him. He does an amazing job of breaking all the news and has consistently done it for the better part of 20 years. Stay locked in on him and stay locked in here for the last word on sports media podcast on the feed. Uh, and for all uh, of uh, our, our sports media conversation, George Offens, tell me a story I don't know with Brett Bielema as the guest this week. Mike and Phil on the announcer schedules podcast with who calls it well. They'll be standing up for Kevin Brown for sure from the Baltimore Orioles on their podcast. For now, we're good. Lots of good conversation here this week. Follow and subscribe to the Last Word on Sports Media podcast feed. Go to lastwordonsports.com slash podcast to find out more. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. I'm merely TJ Reeves. Thanks one more time to Brett McMurphy of the Action Sports Network. Hope you like the takes and the insight uh, here on Sports Media that come your way. Diversity here on this feed every week. Make sure you're following and subscribing for the Last Word on Sports, the media podcast, and the feed. Bye. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com podcast. Easier said, done.